All right. Oh, good. There we go. All right. Thank you for being here this morning. I was asked a couple of times if I was preaching this morning. I said, no, I'm the deacon of the week. But uh, Mark called me Friday afternoon and, uh, and uh, asked me if I would preach today, and he apologized. And I thought, good grief. Everything he's going through, he's apologizing to me. And I said, why are you apologizing? He said, well, I didn't give you a whole lot of time. I said, a day and a half? I said, man, that's like gold. What are you talking about? I went to a church one time in North Georgia to a, a tent meeting, and uh, I walked in the five minutes before service started, and the preacher came up and said, um, I know you. You're Joel Tumlin, right? And I said, yes, sir. He goes, I'm trying to find the perfect spot here. I said, um, he goes, can you preach this morning? I said, sure. I said, when? He said, five minutes. I got to tell you, it was one of the best sermons I ever preached. <laughs> you really don't want to give me a whole lot of time to prepare. Doesn't always go as well. But anyway, I appreciate that. Also, I know we're streaming this live on Facebook, and my mom and dad and my grandmother and my sister are housebound right now and they can't uh, can't go to church so they're watching so hey mom hey dad mama and say so we got the business out of the way we're looking this morning in Matthew chapter 27 Matthew chapter 27 pastor Herod preached out of this uh, a while back and I, I'm certainly not going to try to to go back and re-preach what he did because he does such a fine job uh, that's really never, never necessary. Uh, but this is a very familiar passage dealing with the crucifixion of Christ. But I want to look at a few different things than the norm this morning and try to point out some things. Uh, as as one, one person said about the service, first service, well, that was an encouragement and a beatdown. So it's all about your perspective, I guess. I want to encourage you, but sometimes we need to be slapped around. I just got to admit, we do, including myself. Pastor, Pastor Herod had asked, has asked me to preach a, a series on evangelism coming up, so I've been studying on evangelism. Let me tell you what happens to the preacher when he starts dealing, studying something that is not necessarily his strong suit. We spend a lot of time repenting before we get in the, pul in the pulpit, and that's usually how it goes. But that allows us to come in and be able to preach because we know we're right. But we look here in Matthew chapter 27. Begin reading in verse number 33. And, and uh, I'm going to skip through some of these because it's a rather lengthy passage. Verse 33 says, And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. When he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. Verse 36. And sitting down, they watched him there, and they set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then it talks about the thieves. Verse 39. And they passed by, reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple, then buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, he, cannot, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted God. 
Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land and unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them stood there when they heard it, saying, This man calls for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, lest us see whether, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept, arose. had an interesting uh, morning yesterday morning. I had some time by myself uh, at home, and uh, I sat down and began to study for the sermon uh, uh, this morning. And I was sitting in my office, and we had the front door open. I heard a commotion. I said, well, somebody's coming to the front door. So I stood up, doorbell rang, and I walked, and there was an elderly gentleman in a suit and a young lady in her 20s and pretty dress, and they were mostly... It was just very nicely dressed, and I thought, well, somebody's about to try to convert me. Here we go. So the first thing I said, hey, how you doing? They said, hello, do you want to have a happy family? Well, of course, my first response was no. I hate closed-ended questions where the only answer you have leads them to another question, which, of course, I had to say, well, yeah, I want to have a happy family. Who doesn't? They said, well, do you want to have a peaceful and contented life? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and about the third time he says, don't you? And I said, just stop right there. I said, who do you represent? He said, Jehovah's Witness. I said, all right. I said, I'm a Baptist minister. I said, I know I don't look like it. I had on a ratty T-shirt with holes all in it and a pair of shorts, no shoes. And I'm standing at the door going, you're not catching me at my best. I said, but I'm a Baptist minister, and I'm in here studying for a sermon right now. He goes, well, thank God, I said, but let me go ahead and tell you, we're not going to agree. He said, well, can't we agree that we love Jesus? I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, well, can't we agree then that we can all just love Jesus together and get along? I went, no. I said, sir, we're not going to agree. I said, and I'm trying to be polite, and I'm going to be, and thank you so much for having enough concern for this neighborhood that you want to present what you think is right. I said, I respect that. I said, as a child of God, I need to be doing the same thing too, and that's what we all need to do. I said, but sir, you and I are not going to agree, and I'm not going to debate with you right here. And the young lady was saying, but sir, I went, no, thank you so much for coming. Goodbye. And I walked off. Now, there's been times in my life where I would have tried to debate. There was a time in our early 20s when Renee and I were just married. I was in seminary, and I was loaded for bear. I mean, I was ready to go. I'd been in church since I was four days old, man. I knew what I was talking about. I was in seminary, man. I was taking Greek. You can't beat that, man. I was taking Greek. And these two young Mormon missionaries came to my door. And I opened the door, and they started, and I went, I'm going to win them to Jesus right here. Thirty minutes later, 
I was standing there with a shocked look on my face, holding a Book of Mormon in my hand, asking them to pray for me. My wife came out, just shook her head and went, what did you just do? I said, I don't know, <laughs> but it didn't go like I think it was going to. The point I'm trying to make is here is you can't debate religion because we're not talking about religion. When I stand up and preach, when Nathan stands up to preach, when Pastor Harris stands up to preach, we're not talking about religion. Religion doesn't save, religion condemns. We're talking about an intimate relationship with a living, personable, holy God who condescended to take on the form of man so that he may die for my sins and give me that relationship that I can have. That's different than religion because it's not based on what I have done, but it's based on what he's done. So you can't debate religion. You say, well, preacher, aren't we all just kind of playing the same game just from a different view? I went, no, we're not. We're on different ball fields, man. We're not playing the same game. So many people talk about religion and they talk about how you have to fulfill X, Y, and Z. And if you go down this path and if you work this way and if, if you just follow my plan, you're going to be all right. Well, folks, that's not what the Scripture teaches, though. You understand that salvation is a covenant that God made with Himself. And the Bible says that He set His love upon you before the foundation of the world. It was a plan that God had. So when He set His love upon you, He said, I will save them and it will be up to me. So I am saved not because of me, not because of my works, not because of an agreement I made with God. We are saved because God said it to be so and He willed it to be so. So as a result, if it's a one-way covenant that God made with Himself, I cannot lose my salvation unless God changes. So as a result, God's not going to change. So I can't lose my salvation. I can rest easier at night. I remember when I was a, when I was a, a deputy down in Atlanta, I, 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 I've told this story before, but I, I put in my two weeks notice because we were going to, moving to Scotland, and I put in my two weeks notice. And the chief deputy, who was the sheriff's brother, so he was like the second highest guy in the whole department, right? He came in. And he said, well, preacher, you're getting ready to go. I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, I just don't get you people. I said, what do you mean? He goes, you believe, <laughs> you believe once saved, always saved. I said, yes, sir, I do. He goes, how can you believe that? I said, because it's not up to me, sheriff. It's not up to the way to what I do. It's all up to God. He goes, so you're saying you can do whatever you want and it'd be okay. I said, no, sir, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying my salvation is not contingent on my works. I'm saying that the grace of God makes it more important that I live for God because it's on what He did and not what I did. So you see now as they crucified Christ in this passage, what you have is not heathen we would call, unchurched, those who didn't know God or think about God. Those that were religious were the ones that were holding this trial. They were the ones mocking him and they were the ones that were crucifying him. So you had before them the Son of God which they refused to accept. 
Why? Because they didn't have the ability to understand. Let me ask you this. Do you think that the high priest and the Levitical order at that time and the Pharisees, do you think they didn't know who Jesus was at the time? Was this a new, was this something that just popped out that night and they decided, hey, let's go have a trial and, and crucify this guy? No, they knew who he was. How did they know? Because one, he had declared himself to be the Son of God. But more than that, he had shown them who he was, had he not? What had he done? He'd walked on the water. <laughs> he fed the poor. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He preached love and compassion for those that, that were less uh, fortunate than we were. He said, love your neighbor and love God. Well, what heresy is that? How bad is that? But yet there was an inability for them to understand what he had preached. They couldn't fathom it. So as a result, what did they do? They wanted to stop it. Listen, Christians, people don't want to hear what we have to say. Why is that? Because we're telling them, look, it's not about you. It's not up to you. You don't have to do X, Y, and Z to come to God. What you have to do is submit and throw yourself on the mercy of a living God. When God saved me, it wasn't this step-by-step -step plan. I was 12 years old, been in church all my life, and I was sitting in the pew right there during choir practice on a Sunday night. It wasn't a preaching service. It wasn't a good singing. There wasn't any emotional draw going on. It was choir practice. And our choir worked at it sometimes. Sorry, Mom. But I was sitting there reading the book, and I remember it. I was sitting on the pew, 12 years old, reading the book, and the power of God fell on me in conviction. And I was scared and convinced that I was about to drop off into hell so much to the point that I picked my, pews, my feet up and set them on the pew because I didn't know what was going to happen. My mother came down out of choir and I picked up my Bible and said, I need to talk. And we went up to the Sunday school room. And uh, she took her Bible and looked at it and looked at me and set it back down and said, well, boy, you know what to do. You just need to beg God. And that's what I did as a 12-year-old boy. Listen, when you're born again, it's not some idea where you find a, a common ground with God and y'all get together and y'all decide on an outcome. And you say, well, God, I'll do this for you if you'll do this for me. What it is is a center where God reveals himself to you. And God doesn't convict you for your sin. What God does is show you a little bit of just who he is. And we realize that in and of ourselves, we do not compare. And you say, is that conviction? That's exactly what conviction is. Is when God reveals himself. And God had revealed himself to me. And I saw as a 12-year-old boy what I was. And I begged him to save me because I knew there was no other option. But religion doesn't, doesn't teach that. Religion doesn't see that because they don't have the ability to understand. If they had the ability to understand, why isn't our altar full right now? Why haven't we all gotten up and come down here and confessed our sins before God and got right with God? Why is this church not filled with lost people trying to get to God? Because religion doesn't teach that we can work our way to... I mean, religion does teach, excuse me, that we can work our way to Jesus. And in some cases, it doesn't even require that. 
But the religious here didn't have to, wouldn't understand, so they mocked. Verses 29, 37, 39, 40 through 44, they mocked him. Can you see them? My favorite here is verse 36. And sitting down, they watched him. They sat and watched him. They wanted to see what was happening. They knew what they had done. They knew what was coming. They did not believe. So religion crucified him. Church, if you're following religion, you're going down the dead-end path that offers no hope. But man, when you realize that Christ Jesus died and he's alive today and that he's the one that can take care of you. He's the one that can sustain you. He's the one that will keep you to the end. Oh, that's when the life changes. That's when it no longer becomes a religious exercise, but it becomes a lifestyle. You say, preacher, why do you get so excited about the things of God? Because I can experience the things of God. This isn't something we have to work up. Listen, I've been accused of having one speed when I preach, and that's flat out from the go. But that's all I got. You know why? Because I've experienced booze of God. I believe it from my toes to the top of my head. And I know the power of God. And I've seen the power of God. And I want it every time I stand in the pulpit. And folks, that should be our life every day. Every day. Religion seeks to duplicate the power of God without having that power. The Bible says that they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Having a form of godliness, a recognition that there's something, but refusing to follow the word of God and the path that God has laid out. So they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They seek to duplicate. How do they seek to duplicate that? They prey on emotions. Listen, Tony, I don't even see him. There you are. Tony's good. Charlie and Beth are good. They can work your emotions with songs. Am I lying? You can build it up. You can work those emotions with songs. I can stand up here. Pastor Nathan, Pastor Mark, we can stand up here and we can work your emotions with our words. Politicians do it all the time. But if there's no power behind the songs, if there's no power behind the preaching, then all you have is a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal with no ability to change lives. But yet that's not what we're after. Emotions do not equate salvation. Why? Because emotions are tainted by sin. You can't trust your emotions. When are emotions right? When they're based in truth. When they're based in doctrine. When they're based on the power of God that comes from that. Listen. The religious world out there is full of, filled up our radio. They filled up our television. All right? They're doing all these things. And it's not necessarily what they're saying. It's what they're not saying. Listen, I'm okay with preaching a sermon that's an encouragement. But I'm also okay with preaching a sermon that's a beat down a little bit because that's what the Word of God does. It's profitable for reproof, 
It's profitable for correction. Sometimes we need that. But we can do that when it's based on the truth of the Word of God. And we can emote as a child of God. And I'm an emotional guy. I, I just am. There'll probably be times in this sermon where I'll have to choke them back a little bit. Because that's who I am. But that's not based on, on anything other than I know what the Word of God is saying. A couple of years ago, Pastor Herod was, was, was teaching through uh, on Sunday night or Wednesday night on revivals. And he was, he was taking revivals that occurred in the past and breaking them down and teaching them. He asked me, because we were missionaries in Scotland, and I had preached, preached on these islands, to preach about the revival in the 50s in the Outer Hebrides under uh, an evangelist by the name of Duncan Campbell, a Presbyterian. And as I sat down to study that and look at it, now I knew quite a bit about it because, like I said, I'd preached for a couple of weeks on that island, and my daughter was saved on that island. And I began to look at it. But the reality of what God had done there struck me in such a way that I just lost it. I broke down. I wept and wept and wept. <laughs> I went on the trip to Panama City with a group and coming back we were sitting in the subway and Beth asked me about something in Scotland. I was telling this story. I broke down in subway looking like an idiot but you know what? That's the way it is. But I began to study that and I couldn't I couldn't even speak. Renee would come in and say, you're all right? And I'd go, uh-huh. An hour later, she'd come back, and I'm still doing it. Because the reality of what God had done on that place struck me and was based on truth. Because I desired to have that happen in my life, in my family's life, in my church's life. But that emotion is always based on doctrine. It's based on the reality of the gospel. It's never extra-biblical. And we need to understand that salvation is not based on your emotion. Neither is living a life for God based on your emotion. Because your circumstances don't affect your position. Think about that one. Write it down. Live by it. How many of us felt like getting up and being excited for God this morning? It was raining. I was sleeping good. Got to go to work in the morning. Not really feeling the whole being a good Christian thing because, man, here we go. But yet it doesn't matter. You know what? I woke up this morning a child of God, Charlie. You know what's going to happen tonight? I'm going to go to bed being a child of God. I'm going to get up in the morning. I'm still going to be a child of God. Nothing's going to change that until God says it's otherwise and He's never going to say otherwise. So you're talking about a victorious Christian life. I'm telling you how to live it. Let's just recognize who we are. Let's recognize what we are and get on with business. The Pharisees and the, and the, and the, and the, the priesthood here, the religious couldn't understand God. They couldn't understand the Son of God because they had no knowledge. They were doing what they thought was right. Paul, when he was on the road to Damascus, on his way to persecute the Christians, was doing what he thought was right because he was doing it in the understanding of the flesh and did not have the Holy Spirit's direction. That is something we have. 
I've had people come to me and say, Joel, if I'm living for God, if I'm doing the best I can, what if I mess up? What if I go down the wrong path? I said, you won't. What do you mean? I said, I'm not saying you can't sin. I'm not saying you can't do wrong things. What I'm saying is, the Bible says that while I was in the way, God led me. If we submit to God, if we live for God, if we submit to Him, then guess what? He's not going to let us go astray. Us to go astray is an active choice on our part. Sin is an active choice on our part. Oh, preacher, it sneaks up on you. The devil made me do it. No. No. The devil didn't make you do it. You did it on your own. It's an active choice. These Pharisees were doing what they thought was right, but they did not have the Holy Spirit to grant them understanding. And now, we move on. I want us to look at another part here. Let's look down to verse number, number 50. Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. This is important because Christ gave up his own life. No man took it. So let's get that understood right here and right now and be done with it. Christ gave up his own life. No man took it. His sacrifice was not forced upon him. He went willingly. You say, preacher, did he want to die? No, he didn't. Let's look back at Gethsemane where he said, If it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was not looking forward to dying, but he went willingly and no man took his life. So he said in verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temples is rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Hey, listen, don't you think that was kind of an eye-opener? It was dark, the Bible said. And then an earthquake hit, and the rocks rent. Don't you think somebody might have said, You know what? I think we missed this one. And the centurion, coming on looking down, the centurion, that's pretty much what he said. But yet, let's look at the children of Israel when they were crossing the desert. They crossed the Red Sea on dry land. God destroyed the enemies that were following. He fed them quail from heaven, manna from heaven, water from a rock, a pillar of cloud by day for coolness, a pillar of fire by night for warmth. And yet, they still did not recognize the goodness of God. Luke chapter 16 talks about the rich man and Lazarus. And the Bible says that the rich man died and in hell he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off. And later on it says, would you send Moses that he could tell them, tell my brothers. And Abraham said to them, they had the prophets and they've had the word and they would not hear even if one returned from the dead. Listen, it's all about God and the things of God and how God operates. And we need to get it out of our heads that we can debate the lost into being born again. We can make them decide for Jesus to be born again. If God doesn't turn the light on, it never comes on. But thank God he gave up the ghost for us. And when he did, the Bible says the veil in the temple was rent. That veil was about 60 feet high, and it's rumored to be about four inches wide. It wasn't a little bitty thing. The Bible says that when he died, it was rent from top to bottom. You say, how was that significant, preacher? Because that veil was the thing that separated man from God. It separated the holy place from the holy of holies, where up until this time, God dwelt. Moses 
told Aaron, God said, you're not to go in because I'm coming down to dwell in the Holy of Holies and you're not to go in. So you had the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was and there was only one allowed in there. And who was that? The high priest. How often was he allowed in? Once a year. And how did he have to go in? With a rope tied to him and bells on the bottom of his robes because if the bell stopped ringing, they knew what? He was dead. Let's all sign up and volunteer for that job, why don't we? But yet the veil was there for protection of the people. The veil was there to keep anybody unworthy from entering into the presence of God. The veil kept the lost from running into the presence of God. Not because, not because they didn't want to go in, because they weren't fit to go in. Folks, we're not fit to go into the presence of God as lost, we're kept from there. And that's our sin nature, which is passive. It's what we're born with keeps us from the presence of God. And then it's the active sin that we commit that keeps us from the presence of God. And that veil, that veil is what separates it. That veil is there for protection as well. So we can live. Because what? Sin cannot be in the presence of God. But then the veil was rent. So what does that mean? Access. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 8 says, The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiness of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was standing. The way to get in there hadn't been made manifest yet. But now... In chapter 10, verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness by the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and what? Living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that to say, his flesh. So when the veil rent, what took his place? Or better yet, who took his place? Christ. Oh, Christ is that veil now. Do you realize that as a child of God, when God sees me, the Father sees me, He doesn't see my sin? You say, oh, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Yes, you are. But God the Father doesn't see you that way. How does He see you? Through the blood of His Son. Let's change our attitude. Let's change our attitude. Listen, listen. We have access to the throne room of God. Before we had no access. Before we could not reach God because we weren't capable of reaching God. But now we have access to God. Hey, children of God, listen. We need to exercise the rights that we have that Christ bought and paid for with His blood that we can access the throne of God. And not only access the throne of God, but go forth boldly into the throne room of God. Man. We have that right. Now listen, let me say this. It might mess you up a little bit too. My dad's been sick. He's, he's had some physical problems. And, and uh, he's been in a lot of pain due to some diabetic stuff. And, and, and uh, he was having a lot of problems with his, with his toes here recently. And, and uh, God's helping him. He, he, we believe he's getting better. And that's what we're praying for. But a couple weeks ago, my mom sent me a, a text and said, your dad's in a lot of pain, just pray for him, he's, he's having a real hard time. So I called, and I said, Mom, can he talk? She goes, I, I don't know, son, I'm not sure, he's laying here, 
He's just, I don't know. I said, well, Mom, just, let's put the phone up to his ear and let me pray for him. So put his phone up to his ear. He goes, hey, son. I said, Dad, I'm going to pray for you. And he goes, all right. So I began to pray. And I began to thank God for his goodness. And I began to thank him for, for all he's done for us. And I began to thank him for his faithfulness to us. And then I said, God, my dad's been a, your child for 50 years. I said, he's been a, a holy man and a godly man. I said, and he's never quit. I said, my mom's never quit. I said, I've never quit. My sister's never quit. I said, now how about helping us out here, Father? I said, my dad's hurting. Can you help him? Something happened on the other end of the phone. <laughs> and my dad started praising God. Through the pain, through the medication, he started praising God. And he began to worship. So I just listened. Because I kind of enjoy listening to my dad. And he said, Father, I'm not worthy for anything. And I said, yeah, you are, Dad. And he kept praying. And I said, Dad, you're worthy. Keep praying. You're worthy. I'm a sinner saved by grace. But I'm so much more. And so are you if you're a child of God. But yet we shortchange ourselves sometimes and we don't take advantage of what God has given for us, what Christ bought with his blood. We don't take advantage of that, that we can enter into the presence of God anytime we want. And we deserve to be there. Not because of who I am, but because of who he is and what Christ did for me. I don't claim my righteousness, I claim his. We have the right, we have the duty, we have the responsibility to enter into the throne room boldly. To ask God for things, to expect things from God. He's our father. He wants to do things for us. I'm not talking about a blabbing, grabbing gospel. I'm not talking about the guy down in Atlanta who said, I, I feel like God wants me to have a, a purple Rolls Royce. And his church bought it for him. And he got on TV talking about how God had supplied his need. Really? Don't insult me with that. Or the preacher right now saying he needs a $57 million private jet to do the work of God. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about going before the throne of God with our needs. Going before the throne of God, God and letting our heart flow with the things that we desire. According to his will. You say, preacher, what if I pray wrong? You can't pray wrong as a child of God because the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and He words them so they're worthy for the Father's ears. We can't lose. Mark will be back next week.
You know, sometimes you come to a sermon and you just run out of words because then it's on the Holy Spirit. Beth, I get to talk to God today. Nathan, I get to preach to you today. Beat that with a stick. It's all I got. Why do we settle, church? Why are we okay with nothing happening? I preached in a little church in Faithfully right outside of Glasgow, Scotland. About 15 people. Had a prayer meeting for the church. And I prayed, God, would you send somebody in that needs to hear the word of God tonight? How many times have we prayed that? Thousands. I stood up there to preach. I said, turn to this passage of scripture and return to it. And right before I started reading, I hear the back door open. Guy comes walking in. I stood there for a second. I said, no, I don't think I'm going to preach that. Let's turn over here and I preach the gospel message. I was watching the church. They saw him come in. They were wide-eyed. After it was over, he came and talked to me. I presented the gospel to him. I said, sir, why did you come in? He goes, I heard the singing. Thought I'd check it out. So my parents been telling me I need to be in church down in London. He said, I thought I'd check it out. Don't know if the guy ever got saved. Have no idea. But I know he got the gospel. I know he can't say he's never heard. But after it was over, the church was just milling around while I was talking to them. All the church members were just milling around, and they kept looking at me. <laughs> big, big eyes. They came up to me afterwards and said, Preacher, how did you do that? I said, do what? They said, you prayed, and the guy came in. That's never happened. I said, that's our fault. I said, church, if we don't believe our own prayers, if we don't believe our own prayers... The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Are we not praying effectually? Are we not praying fervently? The veil rent, church. The veil rent. Our access is through Jesus Christ now. We have access. We can do so much more. We can be so much more. So I told you. Little blessing, little beat down. We're gonna pray and then we'll have an invitation. Altars are open. Pray in your pew. I don't care.
I don't care. Wherever God tells you to get, get. But let me tell you something, folks. For the first service, Nathan, Pastor Nathan told me, he said, hey, look, i got to step out during the first service, but, but uh, I'll be back for the second. I said, that's fine, but if revival breaks out, you get down here fast. <laughs> I was half joking, but why not? I hope God scares you to death. What do you mean? I've been in service where the power of God was so thick that I was afraid to move. I'm not talking about some existential, emotional outpouring. I'm talking about a move of God that was undeniable. And my daughter got saved that night. That's what I'm praying for Trinity Baptist Church. I'm praying that the power of God falls when Mark Herod's up there so much that he can't speak anymore. That's what I'm praying for. You say, Pastor, that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> then the God I've experienced is different from the God you've experienced. Father, take the word of God and make it alive to us. Don't let us be like the religious where, where we can't hear, we can't understand. We, we've got the word. We've got the manual. We've got everything we need. Well, let us take advantage of it. Let us, let us enter your throne room boldly so that we could be effectual and fervent in our prayers and, and, and we could see power, power of God move and manifest it. That as they said about Paul and Barnabas, turn the world upside down. Right, the altar's open.
this point, I'd like to ask our ushers to come forward and Kyle Simmerman, uh, who's our Deacon of the Week, to come offer our offertory prayer. Let's pray, please. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this opportunity you've given us today to meet together and to hear your word. We're thankful for the message you gave, Brother Joel, especially thankful that we have access to God because of his son, Jesus Christ, and because of his shed blood. We thank you for that hope that we have. We pray you will be with us as we continue to worship, as we receive the offering. Let the tithes and the offering be used according to your will and your way for purpose of our church to be a greater outreach here in this community and we thank you for that in Jesus name we pray amen